farmer sowing his seed, a fisherman bringing in his nets, a jewel hunter searching for a pearl of great price, a man looking for treasure in a field. All of those represent things the Lord used to try to teach a lesson to people with these things as everyday parts of their lives. Whenever you teach God's Word, you have to get on a level and you have to get people's minds thinking in regards to how this relates in real life. When you preach many centuries beyond the first century, many times the illustrations will change. In fact, very few people today are farmers. In our area, there are very few people who would fish commercially. I don't know how many people would pursue looking for goodly pearls or how many might be treasure hunters. I do know one thing. We watch a lot of television. And there are many things that can draw our attention. So I want to talk this morning. The title of our lesson is Let's Make a Deal. And now many of you may remember the show that began in 1963. It's been on for 50 years. Uh, I remember as a child one of my favorite shows was Let's Make a Deal with Monty Hall. And I would remember that uh, he would go and he would say, would you trade what you have for what's behind door number two or door number three? And I will tell you that it was sad that many times people would take something that was really worth something and trade it for a goat attached to a rope. They would trade something of real value. And you know, when you look at real life, too often people make foolish exchanges. They change something really valuable for something that is not valuable at all. And the reason why that is is because people sometimes do not think through their choices. They don't consider the possible outcomes of the choices they will make. Which brings me to the text. I want you to go back with me to Matthew chapter 16 if you have your Bibles, and I encourage you to read along with me. Right after... Peter had made the great proclamation that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And after Jesus had praised Peter for his understanding of who he was, the Lord then had to rebuke Peter. And what Jesus did was to explain what was the choice before him. And in fact, there really wasn't a choice if he wanted to do what was right What he needed to do was to die. Notice as we begin in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. 
But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now I see the choice. Either I can choose what's behind door number one, or I can choose what's behind door number two. What Jesus said, I'm going to choose what's behind the things of God. And Peter was thinking only in terms of the things of men. But you see, you've got to apply this. You can't just simply look at what Jesus said to Peter and not realize that there's an application for you and myself. And so what we do, we notice verses 24 through 26 and that the faithful will follow the Lord. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now I want to stop there for just a moment. Because we're going to, verse 16 is the key passage. But I want you to think about what Jesus is saying. You have a choice. You can either choose the things of God or the things of men. And many people, because they do not evaluate, they do not think about it, will simply say, this way has the least amount of difficulty, this way has the least amount of pain, and so I am going to choose the things of men. And Jesus said, but if you're going to follow after me, you have to take up your cross. And you think about, well, what am I going to exchange? Verse 26, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? There are three things that I'd like for us to look at as a preview of our lesson is to think about the existence of the soul, the evaluation of our soul, and then finally the exchange. And I want to focus this morning on the idea of the soul of man. What's yours worth? Let's begin, first of all, with the existence of it. Do you have a soul? Have you seen it? What does it look like? You see, there are many people like the atheist who say that you are only a biological being, that everything that you are is just a process of the blood flowing around in your body and the oxygenation of it, and you are just a bunch of electrical impulses that are going on in your brain, that your nerves, it's all just like a biological being. There's nothing special about you, and that when you die, all of that ceases to happen. I've met people who really believe that. The Bible teaches we are a biological being. God took man from this dust of the earth. He breathed into man's nostrils and he became a living soul. But there were not just a biological being. You know, there's some religious groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses define the soul only as life. I've had some come and visit and say, can I talk with you? And sure. And you start talking to them about eternity. And they will say, oh, but you, are, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. And really the soul just means your life that you have in you. 
Well, let's look at that. Because Jesus taught that the soul survives death. We're going to look at some scriptures that prove that. Matthew 10, verse 28, Jesus said, And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus said there are people here on earth that can kill your body. That's life. You know, if you take a gun and shoot somebody and all the blood flows out of the body or you hit a vital organ, that person will die. But his soul didn't. After that, Jesus said they can do nothing more. But he said, let me tell you who you should fear. You should fear God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's not all. In Luke 16, verses 22 and 23, Jesus told an account of what happens after death. Here's what he said. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now you think about that for just a moment. Where was the rich man's body? It was in the grave. He was buried. But what happened to the rich man after death? He found himself when he opened his eyes being in torments in the place called Hades. His body was dead. His life had left that body, but his soul was still living. In Luke chapter 23, verses 42 and 43, while he hang upon the cross, the robber next to him and asked him, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, you will be with me, or today you will be with me in paradise. Now I know where Jesus' body was placed. It was placed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Where was Jesus' soul and the soul of that thief next to him? In eternity. See, the soul doesn't die. Peter and John both, or Peter and Paul both speak of it. Paul said in Philippians 1 and verse 23, I'm hard-pressed between the two, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Depart from where? this life where was he going to be he was going to be with Christ the soul does not die 1 Thessalonians 5.23 this is the passage that I would use if I were going to explain this to somebody who didn't believe in the soul who said the soul was only your life Paul writes now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole now listen carefully spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are three things that he uses here. Spirit, soul, and body. You can say, well, spirit and soul sometimes are used interchangeably. Yes, they are in some context. But you got both of them here. So the life of man is not the soul. It's something more. It's something... That 
that survives this life. In 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the, by the Spirit, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. Somebody says, well, who are the spirits in prison? He says, who were formerly disobedient? Well, I know they were disobedient people. When once the divine long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. I know who they are now. They are people who lived during the days of Noah. But now those disobedient people are spirits in prison. Revelation chapter 6 verse 9 as well as chapter 20 verse 4 says, When he opened the fifth seal, he saw... Or I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. These are people who have been killed. Where are they? They are in God's presence under the altar. Chapter 20, verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of who had been beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast nor his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. These are people in the presence of Christ who have died. The soul lives on. You know, we sang just a little while ago where the soul never dies. So there's only one conclusion that you can draw, that man has an immortal soul. But now the second thing is, what's it worth? If you have one, I have one, what's the value of it? What kind of price would you place upon your soul? We have to look at things that you possess and say, what's their value? You may have uh, a watch, and that watch may be a Timex from Walmart. And you may say, it's worth $5, it's worth $10. You know it's not going to last long. You know you didn't pay a lot for it. On the other hand, you may have something that's been in your family for five generations. And it's something that's precious to you, and you're not going to let it go because it endures. Now let me tell you, when you look in the Bible, you compare things that are temporary versus things that are permanent. Let me give you a couple of illustrations here from the Bible. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Therefore do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more and exceeding eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. Now, here's the key. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You see this physical body, you know what's going to happen to it? It's going to wear out and eventually die. Do you realize, though, that the soul will not? 
That which is visible versus invisible. That which is temporary versus that which is permanent. That explains such passages as 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable in all things, or for all things, having the promise of the life which now is and that which is to come. Does that suggest that we should not try to take care of our physical self? Oh, we should. But what if you live a hundred years? What if you live a hundred and ten years? How does that compare with eternity for the soul? And that's why he's saying, if you've got to make a choice... You choose that which is eternal versus that which is only temporary. A second reason why the soul is so in, so valuable is because it is the part that is like God. You remember Genesis 1 and verse 26? Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now I've got a question. How is it that we bear resemblance to God? Is it our eyes, our ears, our hands, our feet, our mouth? No. John 4 verse 24, God is spirit. So if we're going to bear the image of the Heavenly Father, it's not in our physical sense, it's in the spiritual sense. As in the eternal soul. Listen as Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, beginning with verse 47, The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are we those who are made of dust. And as the heavenly man, so also are those who are made or who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. He's trying to explain to us there's a difference between this physical body and our spirit or our soul. And he's trying to explain to us that that's the part that's like or in the image of the heavenly man. A third thing that helps us evaluate our soul is the cost of it. And when you think about souls, Psalm 49 is a really good passage. David said, None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever. The redemption of their souls is costly. You can't buy somebody else's soul. Somebody said, well, he's talking about life. No. Drop down to verse 15. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. He's talking about the eternal soul. And when you go to 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, 
knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as the lamb without blemish and without spot. You have to calculate as well as what it would mean if you lost it. Now, sometimes we don't appreciate things until we lose them. I know when you study Luke 15, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost sons, you read those passages, you, you understand the value of something. But I want you to think about what it means if a person were to lose their soul. James 5, 19 and 20 says, Brethren, if any among you or anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. He's talking about eternity. Eternal death. What if somebody were to save your life, your physical life? Oh, man, I'm indebted to them. What if somebody saves your soul? That's even more precious to you. John 5, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. They that have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. What if I am lost? I never will forget the sermon that Brother Stanley McEnery preached, probably the first one I heard him preach after I moved here. And I remember he based it on a poem about the cost of a lost soul. And I remember the last phrase of it, someone is going to have to pay. Someone is going to have to pay. You think about the payment for sin. Mark 4 or Mark 9, 43 through 48 describes what a person should be willing to give up to save their soul. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter in life maimed than rather having two hands to go into hell into a fire that shall never be quenched and where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Verse 45, he talks about if your foot. And verse 47, he talks about your eye. And he keeps saying where the fire is not quenched. Now finally, let's talk about the exchange of the soul. I have observed that people quite frequently will trade, barter, more valuable things for less valuable things. They simply just don't think. They trade something of really great value for something that's worthless. And there's a biblical illustration of that. Let me take you to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 16 and 17. And the background of it is from Genesis 25. He's worried about those people who are having been chastised or disciplined, developed a wrong idea. And he said, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau 
who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. I can visualize in my mind Esau coming in. I'm hungry. Jacob's got this good-smelling pot of stew. Give me some of it. No, sell me your birthright. Esau says, to paraphrase, what good's my birthright going to do me if I'm perish with hunger? Okay, I'll sell it to you. Give me the Give me the stew. And he sold him his birthright. What this text tells us is, is that afterwards he wished he hadn't done that. He exchanged something so valuable without considering the consequences of it. People do that all the time. I'll give you another illustration. People sometimes sell their souls to the devil. You say, oh, that's just a, a myth. No. Listen to 1 Kings 21, verse 20 and verse 25. So Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Do you really understand what that means? We'll drop down to verse 25. For there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. Here's reality. Ahab was a weak, inept man indecisive leader. Jezebel was the one who controlled him. And you say, are you sure about that? Well, yes. Naboth had a vineyard. Ahab tried to buy it. Naboth said, I'm not going to sell it to you. He went back home and pouted. Jezebel came in and saw the king pouting and basically said, you need to get up and act more like a king. I'll get you this property. She went out and had Naboth killed, took his property, and gave it to him and said, Now here's you a vineyard. He sold himself to the devil to have a wife like Jezebel who would take over for him. Too many people have exchanged their souls for the wealth of this world. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from their faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. What do I choose? Am I going to choose to pursue wealth or am I going to choose to pursue righteousness? Well, let me point out to you, there's some people who are able to think things through. They look at their choices. I can choose to serve God, and it may not always be pleasant, at least in this life. 
or I can choose to enjoy all the pleasures that this world offers. I read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Why did he do that? Look at verse 26. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Now here's how he could do that. For he looked to the reward. He looked and saw where all this was going to end. What are you going to trade? The devil says, let's make a deal. Will you trade your faith? Will you trade your devotion for what pleasure I can provide for you now? Well, let me ask you, what would you trade your soul for? Would you trade your soul for fame? Sometimes as a young person, many of you would like to say, oh, I'd love to be this rock star. I'd love to be this athlete. I'd love to be so famous that people would just love to come and and scream and holler for me. Would you trade it for fortune? To have the kind of money that these billionaires have? If I could just, you know, trade my eternal soul for all this money, would I do that? Would you trade your soul for your family? Oh, you're, you're making it a little difficult now. Because, see, there's some people who've done that. I don't want to offend my family, and so I'll give up my faith. I've had people tell me, oh, I just want to be happy in this life. Really? So you're willing to exchange your eternal soul for a few moments of happiness. How is that any different than Esau? One of the things that I think everybody who was on that show, Let's Make a Deal, would love to have done is to be able to pull back the curtain. Now, if I could pull back the curtain and see a goat tied, I'd say, no, I'm not trading. On the other hand, if they pull the curtain back and they say, a new car. Okay, let me tell you, the Bible pulls back the curtain for eternity. Listen to Revelation 7, 13 and 14. Then one of the elders answered, saying, Who are these arrayed in white robes? And where did they come from? Okay, I'm seeing this. What am I seeing? And he said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are people whose lives have been washed from their sins by the blood of Christ. We're going to sing the song, Nothing But the Blood, in just a moment. I hope that reminds you of this. The blood of Christ that's been applied to people's lives because they've been baptized for the remission of their sins. They pull the curtain back on the other side. Luke chapter 16. Now we're going back to the rich man. 
He said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him, that is Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. I don't want anybody else to have to suffer that. You've heard the phrase, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. You don't want to wish hell on anybody. And you definitely don't want to go there yourself. The devil really would like to make a deal with you right now. The deal that he would like to make with you is simply this. If you look at your life and you know you're not ready to go to heaven, he would like to say, now just, just understand, you don't have to make your mind up right now. You can put it off a little bit later. Now's not the time. The devil will rationalize with you. Just, just try this for a while. You will like this life that I'm offering you. If you listen to the devil, you just got a goat with a rope. Because what he's selling you is eternal death. If you need to be a Christian, believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess your faith in him and be baptized. You need to come back and be restored to faithfulness. We'll pray with you. Would you come while together we stand and sing?